So I think that like, I think people just got sick of debunking this guy's papers after a certain point. Yeah. But I think that like a much larger number of them also wouldn't hold up to scrutiny if you took a look. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense. Also, I would not be surprised if he was like 7% of my papers have been, you know, questioned or discredited or whatever. And then you like look at the data set and you're like, it can't be 7%. (laughs) (laughs) That's mathematically impossible, Brian. Have you learned nothing? (laughs) I think it's, it is worth looking at him and his work very closely. And I also think in the same way that his work encourages us to look at folks sort of on an individual level, and there's an impulse to resist there. I think there's an impulse to resist here, which is only looking at him and not also looking at like, hey, all of this stuff passed muster for all the systems that we have. Oh, yeah. This went through the entire peer review process. This got published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, the New England Journal of Medicine, like whatever the biggest journals are, right? So that also feels like a really challenging layer to to add on to all of this is that this isn't an exception. This isn't someone who skirted the system. This is someone who went through the system and this is what came out. Exactly. I mean, I think there's a huge media story here too in that the New York Times should not be quoting anybody 60 times. Mm. That just to me is just a huge red flag when you're going back to the same source over and over again because then you have kind of like this mutualistic relationship between the journalist and the researcher. Mm. I listened to a really interesting podcast series on the Dr. John Berardi show about sort of the, you know, scientific debunking as an institution. They said something really interesting. They said that, you know, in fields of science where not very much is known, there's just a lot of mysteries still to solve. It's oftentimes the most confident people, not necessarily the most knowledgeable people Mm. or the most careful people who get the most attention. And I think that Brian Wansing really took advantage of that, that he's like a good public speaker, he's handsome, he's straight and white and cis. Mm. He's just kind of out in public giving good TED Talks, you know, writing very pop, easy to read books. Yeah. And I still cannot get over the fact that, you know, all this stuff about like weight loss, you know, use smaller plates, eat one fewer candy bar a day, you'll lose 27 pounds. He never, it appears, even attempted to test any of this. Yeah. And that's really incredible to me because his entire thesis, you know, his entire career was dedicated to this idea that, you know, we can make inadvertent small changes to our food environments and lose a bunch of weight. Well, why not take a hundred families and swap out 50 of them with smaller plates and see what happens? Yeah. You know, people can't stay on the Atkins diet for six months. People can eat off of smaller plates for six months. That's actually a pretty easy test to do. Yeah. And yet he never even tried. You know, we talk in sort of food world and uh, nutrition world about health halos, right? Things that seem to take on more value and almost more moral value because they appear to be healthy. There's like a little bit of a health halo effect with nutrition research. Oh, yeah. We are all in this sort of constant state of desperation for more concrete answers than the various and sundry diet marketing that we're exposed to. And I think when someone comes along who is from the academy, who has trained in the scientific method and, you know, does something that seems official and more concrete. Yeah. We sort of put folks who do that research up on a pedestal and put that research up on a pedestal in Mm -hmm. a very uncritical way. Yes. I mean, this is the story of how far you can go if you are telling people things they want to hear. I should also mention, I can't believe you just brought up the term health halo. Do you know who coined the term health halo? Brian Wansink. Nah, fuck. Come on. Really? Yeah, dude. Michael. This brings us to our happy epilogue. Do you want to hear the happy epilogue? Let's hear it. I was totally surprised by this, actually. So 
in the research for this episode, I did a lot of reading on school lunches generally. Did you know that school lunches have gotten like way better? Really? Yes. So in 2010, the Obama administration passed the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act. Mm. And like there's all these studies showing that like kids are eating more fruits and vegetables. Kids are eating more whole grains. They took – a lot of schools took like chocolate milk and strawberry milk out of schools. A lot of them took soda out. There's all this data now showing that like the average school lunch is significantly more healthy than the average like bagged lunch. That's I'm so I'm so glad to hear that there it sounds like more nutrient dense like yeah. foods. There are more foods with like fiber in them. There are fewer foods that are just high way high sugar. Yeah, a lot a lot more food is made from scratch now. I mean, there's still, you know, it's obviously not perfect. It's not as good as other countries. There's still huge inequalities. Like it's not perfect. Mm. But I I do think that it's worth noting sort of these kinds of improvements. And I also think that it's worth noting like what improves kids' health. Mm. And it's it's like laws and fucking money. Mm. Like one of Mm. the main things that went along with this act was way more money for schools. Yeah. I think it's like $3.38 per meal and it used to be like $1.30 per meal. So it's like, yeah, when you give schools more money to feed kids, they feed kids better. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) You know, there's all the hidden stuff with Brian Wansink's work. But then the more visible stuff is like this is something he was not interested in at all. He goes out of his way throughout both of his books to be like, oh, we shouldn't take chocolate milk away from kids because then they'll avoid school lunches altogether. Like, we don't want to change anything. That's too paternalistic. And it's like, no, Brian, we should take the chocolate milk away. <laughs> like, I feel fine about there not being chocolate milk in schools, dude. Also, we we live in a world of forced choices, right? It's happening all around yes. us all the time. That is part of the central conceit of his work. It seems really weird to say we're going to stop short of forcing choices, even though all of his research is forcing choices. Exactly. The implication, the obvious implication of his work is that we should force choices, right? That these are designed environments. There's no such thing as a non socially engineered food environment. Like we are surrounded by social engineering at all times. So we might as well engineer good environments, especially for kids. But it's like as soon as it came to any actual mandatory thing of like forcing kids to not have those choices, he would like completely freak out and be like, no, 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 the corporations have to be our partners. Like it's very clear what his actual project was the entire time. Ultimately, these are incredibly complex issues And to focus just on these sort of like individual choice slash life hack stuff feels like very short-sighted to me. So uh, in conclusion, don't life hack, write to your senator and uh, make something from the 1936 Joy of Cooking tonight. Also, if there are any researchers or science reporters listening, uh, put Elmo stickers on the good research. (laughs) 